Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Someone has said that the world is changed by your example, not by your opinion. Words, we know, have a certain power, but nothing is more compelling and gripping than a life that's worthy to be followed. And what we've been looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is... Paul's testimony of that very fact. He has been writing to the Thessalonians with great fervor and with heartfelt love to remind them of his life and his testimony along with his teaching. He's been laboring to combine their memory of the content of what he taught them with the conduct by which he lived his life in front of them. And so throughout these chapters, these first couple of chapters, you've been hearing Paul make this appeal to their first-hand knowledge of what it was like when they were with him. He keeps telling them things like, you yourselves know how we conducted ourselves, or as you know, or as you remember, or you are witnesses, again and again and again, calling them to think back carefully about the kind of life, the kind of interaction and experience they had with him as a, as a man of God and as a minister of the gospel. The example that he set before them, it was really his most powerful defense for what appeared to be an all-out attack against him and against his message by enemies who were still there in Thessalonica. It had been some months since he had departed, you remember, run out of town, and those enemies who had chased him out of town weren't content to simply have him gone. They chased him even all the way down to Berea, and then once they got there, they chased him out of Berea. They seemed... They seem bent on eradicating any sense of influence that Paul might have had with anyone that they knew. And Paul was enormously concerned that now, having run him out of town and run him really out of the region, that they would follow behind with every believer in Thessalonica and try to persuade them to abandon the church, to abandon the faith, to abandon any kind of love or trust in the Apostle Paul. So there was apparently this concerted effort to smear his name and his reputation after he had left town. And so he he sends Timothy back, as he explains in chapter 3. He sends Timothy back to find out what kind of impact these attacks were having on the church at Thessalonica. And Timothy, thankfully, brings a good report that the Thessalonians were not only standing firm in their faith, but they were remembering Paul fondly. And so with all of that as background, he writes this letter expressing his love and his gratitude, but also reinforcing in their minds what they know about his life and ministry, as well as his message, in order to protect against the crafty schemes of his detractors. So much of these opening chapters center on this connection between his conduct and his content between his life and his message. And it ends up being perhaps one of the greatest expressions in the New Testament of the connection between Paul and those that he ministers to. One of the greatest 
testimonies of the character of his ministry and his approach to ministry. And we've been looking at it, identifying those qualities that arise out of this and really reflect his, his shepherding and a kind of shepherding to which we all aspire. And these qualities certainly are applicable to leaders. I know in my own heart they have been convicting and refining and ministering as we've been looking at this. But it really isn't just about that. It isn't only about shepherds and leaders and teachers and pastors. Because as much as these things were true in Paul's life, they are things to which you should strive. You remember, Paul regularly emphasizes to the Thessalonians that not only did he live his life in a certain way before them, but that his life became an example for them to follow after. He was presenting his life, not only as validation of his message, but he was presenting his life as an example and a pattern that they were to walk in. He'd emphasize this back in chapter 1, verse 6, that they had already become imitators of he, he and Silas and the others, and he was rejoicing in that. And even later, in 2 Thessalonians, he will again bring up how he intends for them to follow his example, to live the way he lived, to minister the way he ministered. And so as we've been looking at this, really describing the life of a true shepherd, what we're describing are the qualities of everyone who desires to faithfully minister within the body of Christ, to faithfully minister according to the gospel, no matter what role you might have within the church. Paul's life, just like the life of every true shepherd, sets a standard, sets a pace that we are to follow. And we've been noting that and looking here in chapter 2 at a number of qualities that reflect in Paul's life and will be reflected in the life of every faithful minister of the gospel, every true and genuine shepherd. The first one, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in the first couple of verses, is that see, these kinds of shepherds, these kinds of ministers are courageous. They're courageous in the face of opposition. And Paul testifies to that in the first couple of verses, how he came to to Thessalonica, having come out of a great ordeal, a great trial in Philippi, having every reason to shrink back from any kind of pain and suffering and ridicule and rejection, and yet he didn't do that at all. He wasn't lost in self-pity. He didn't shrink back from more pain and more loss, but he showed a courage that he says came to him from the Lord. It was supernatural courage. He, he rested in the fact that God was going to take care of him. He understood the power of God and the power of the gospel. And so he demonstrated tremendous courage to speak the truth even during times of conflict and times of opposition. Secondly, Paul also highlights, he reminds him in his ministry of how he was dependent on God's approval. We might even say dependent on God's approval alone. Verse 3, he He recognizes there were those who were accusing him of error and deceit, but he makes clear in verse 4 that what drives him isn't their approval or their affirmation. What drives him is a compelling desire, a need even, to please the Lord. He didn't need schemes to secure a following for men and women because it really made no difference to him. Whether they followed him or not, that wasn't his concern. He was singularly focused on pleasing God, and he was confident 
that God had tested his heart, confident that God had approved him because of his conscience before God and because of how God was powerfully using him in the preaching of the gospel. There's really no better place as a minister of the gospel, no simpler approach to ministry, no more powerful focus, or no focus, I should say, that would bring more power to your ministry than this, simply keeping your heart and your mind singularly focused on the pleasure of one person, which is God. You have your mind and heart there, you're free from all the other trappings and all the other things that would ensnare you. You're free to go out there and be a servant of Christ. To do what He says regardless of the cost. To say what He says. To to follow what He commands regardless of the cost. Because your aim is to please one person. And then closely related to that, thirdly, a quality of a genuine shepherd that we see in verses 5-7 through and Paul reminds them of, was that he was sincere in his service. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul's aware that his critics accused him of these things. But in contrast to all the flattering speech and the pretext for greed and the demands for self-glory or for personal prestige and prominence, throwing around your authority and your position and your title and all those other things. In contrast to all of that, Paul says we actually prove to be gentle in our ministry, tenderly caring for you like a mother would her own children. And this is the image of his ministry that he knows would be true upon their reflection in his life. A genuine concern for the most weak and tender among them. A ministry that was full of compassion and mercy, that was palpable to them. They would have seen it and recognized it. They would have uh, uh, been able to recall these images in their mind that this was Paul's ministry. Paul's saying, think back about your time together with me. Is, Is that what you remember? Is that the kind of message that you heard? Is that the kind of tenderness that you saw? And all of it speaks about the sincerity. All of it speaks about the kinds of things that he pursued. He wasn't, as we said, throwing his weight around. He wasn't consumed with personal prestige. And he certainly wasn't uh, pursuing personal luxury. He was focused on giving to the Thessalonians whatever they needed for their spiritual good and for their spiritual growth. That is mirrored in the fourth quality of this genuine shepherd that Paul lays out in verse 8, which is his unreserved love. He says, we were affectionately desirous. In fact, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you were or had become very dear to us. So once again, you can hear this connection between the content of what he was saying to them and the conduct with how he lived his life. Paul 
came to them not to get something from them, but to give to them. And what he wanted to give to them was the most valuable thing he could give to them, which is the gospel of God. He wanted to share with them the gospel of God. That's his whole desire. To, to pour out to them the truths that he knew were salvific and sanctifying and brought peace and assurance and joy. But his giving didn't stop just with the content of his message. Because Paul also, Paul also says he gave them his very life. He shared, he says, our own selves. The word is uh, suke. It, it really talks about the inner life. In other words, this was, he wasn't saying, I just gave you time on my calendar and room in my schedule. This was his inner man, his heart, his emotions, everything within him. He poured out himself, the inside out with them. Just like he told the Corinthians in very similar context, 2 Corinthians 12. He said to the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will most gladly, or or, or we might translate it, I'm thrilled, I'm overjoyed to do what? I'm thrilled to do what? To spend. There are a lot of people who are thrilled to receive. There are a lot of people who are thrilled to buy. They go out and to shop and to to maybe hand over some of their hard-earned cash to get something in return. But Paul says, no, I'm thrilled to spend, to spend his life on somebody else and not on himself. And he's telling them that if getting the gospel to you is the emptying out of myself, as he tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, if it's pouring out my life like a, like a drink offering on the altar, if it is, it is pouring myself out, costing even my life, that's okay with me. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to do that. Why? Because he understood his Savior who said to his disciples, Mark 10, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give my life as a ransom. To let my life pay for something. To spend my life. For you. So Paul's saying to the Corinthians, look, if the price and the cost of your spiritual growth is my life and my time and my pleasures or my whatever, he says, I am thrilled. If that must be paid out, then I am thrilled to be able to pay that for your sake. I will spend, I'll be expended, meaning to the point of exhaustion, finished out, emptied out. I'll gladly, if my life is snuffed out because I gave so much effort in striving for your growth and your spiritual well-being, I would spend everything I have, all my energy, all my time, all my resources, everything within my very soul for you. 
And just like the Corinthians, Paul's telling the Thessalonians here, this is me, I poured out everything. I not only gave you the gospel of God, I gave you myself. This is not a selfish man. This is the pattern and the pace that Paul sets for the Thessalonian church. This is the way he lived his life in front of them. Far from the self-centeredness and the selfishness of which he was being accused. They could look in his life and they could remember a man totally pouring out himself for the lives of others. This is unreserved love. You might expect this within someone's life for a few select people that they dearly love. You might expect this for maybe a parent to a child, a mother for her children, or a father for his children. You might expect that this would be the way someone would love those who are close to them. But not the entire body of Christ. And yet Paul's saying, this is the way we loved you. I loved you like a mother loves her children. A nursing mother tenderly with her children. Or a few verses later, like a father to his own children. That's the way I loved you. Pour out my life for my son or for my daughter. I'll pour out my life for you. He gave himself unreservedly to those to whom he was called to minister. Well, now as proof of that, he goes on in verse 9 and gives us a fifth quality of a genuine shepherd, which again unfolds from this, and that is his sacrificial labor. He was sacrificial in his labor for them. And you'll see at the beginning of verse 9 how he uses this little explanatory conjunction for, for, uh, you remember, he, he's going he's to now link this together with this whole idea of him giving of himself. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And so this is the, now the evidence that he puts forward as part of the proof of his unreserved love. And it's the sacrificial nature of how he labored for them. This is at least part of the way that Paul gave his own life as he gave them the gospel. And it was in how he labored and toiled. And what he's referring to here is his work, not just his work of ministry but his work as a tent maker. We know from Acts 18.3 that Paul served from time to time in this kind of a trade. We don't know a lot more about that. We don't know what part of tent making he was involved with. We don't know what materials he used. Some tents were made out of leather. Some were made out of goat's hair and required intricate weaving to get the fabric ready. But we know that at times he had to work to support himself, and this is what he did. And it was difficult work. It was strenuous work. This, in fact, wasn't work that paid very well. There were other jobs that would have been more lucrative. This is, we might say, this is not white-collar work. Paul was not a white-collar worker. According to experts in Greco-Roman uh, times, tent makers were pretty low on the economic scale. 
They were basically day laborers who struggled to make enough to even live on. And so while Paul was ministering, he says, to the Thessalonians, he was engaged in this manual labor. And he describes it here in the words labor and toil. The first word referring to the difficulty of the task itself. The second referring to the exhaustion that would have come from it. It left Paul exhausted. It left him spent, no doubt, at the end of the day because it wasn't an easy job. And yet, he says, he labored night and day. Meaning that his work as a tent maker would consume a certain amount, maybe a large portion of his day, but then that wasn't the end. He would then spend into the evening working as a shepherd and as a pastor in the hearts and lives of the people. There was very little downtime for Paul. He wasn't going around demanding me time. He wasn't uh, always looking for the next personal retreat. He was spending himself, giving of himself, no claim on personal time, no claim on, on uh, the, the, the necessary rest or whatever. All of this was given for their sake. Either working to earn his living or working on behalf of their souls. Now this was a frequent missionary strategy for Paul. We know he did this on at least three occasions. He did it here in Thessalonica. He did it in Corinth and he did it in Ephesus, we're told. He would go into new territory and preach to the people, not asking them for anything and simply giving to them the gospel and his life. Now, if you search through the Thessalonian letters, you'll find that Paul makes frequent mention of this. You'll discover, I think, as you go through that, that there were at least three reasons why Paul did this. The first was that he wanted to simply take away potential accusations that he was engaging in the ministry for, we might say, mercenary motives. That he was simply ministering to people for what he could get out of them. He wanted to just silence that kind of critique. And you can see it even here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, how sensitive Paul was to that charge that somehow he had come and he had been doing everything he had been doing for the time he was with them out of a pretext for greed. That he was just simply looking to bilk them out of something. He seemed to understand that somewhere along the way, this would be one of the tactics that could be and would be used against him. Perhaps it was because there were so many in his day who did do that. There was a whole parade of traveling sophists and philosophers who went around and plied their opinions and their knowledge and used even forms of trickery and underhandedness to extract from people fees and and money. And Paul didn't want to be lumped in together with those guys. So when Paul came to a town, he did everything he could to avoid that kind of thing. And also, when his enemies wanted to undermine his ministry, they they thought that they could go after him in this way to simply accuse him of some kind of greediness. But Paul avoided all that by this kind of hard work. He wanted to set himself 
apart. He says the same thing to the Corinthians over in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. And what I'm doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasting, their work is on the same terms as what we do. So Paul wanted to undermine his opponents. He wanted to avoid the stigma of association with charlatans that were, as I said, peddling their opinions for the sake of personal gain. He didn't want to be lumped together with them. And even though he says in verse 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 15, very clearly, he says he had a right to this kind of support when he preached the gospel. He didn't want to use that because he understood that while every soldier who fights does so for pay and every farmer who, ser- who, who tends his crops does so with the hope of reaping something from his labor there, he wanted to avoid any kind of suspicion and so he went against that natural order and served without receiving anything from those he was ministering to. And you can see even in this context, in spite of his best efforts, still people were trying to accuse him. In spite of all that testimony of his life, still there were people who were coming along and trying to label him and tag him as having some sort of uh, motive of greed. It's almost as if they were just going to throw whatever they could out there and see what would take. Even though Paul had worked so hard and labored and toiled so hard. It's just ridiculous, really. Shows how desperate these men were to undermine his gospel. And it also shows how perceptive Paul was to the potential threats. So this was his first reason, just simply to undermine all that. Secondly, he says that he doesn't want to burden them. He perceived that this would be a particular burden. So you can see right here in verse 9. We worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He understood that if he were to take something in return for his preaching, it would have been a particular burden to the Thessalonians, probably because they were poor. He later describes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Along with all the churches of Macedonia, he says in the opening verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that they were all experiencing extreme poverty. Almost beggarly kind of financial crisis. And so he understood that, and he understood that he didn't want to burden them, and so instead of asking them for financial support while he was with them, what he did was he sought it from other churches. In fact, Philippians chapter 4, 
very specifically mentions, in fact, you can have your Bibles, you can flip over, it's just a few pages uh, back in your Bible, Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul mentions very specifically, while he was in Thessalonica, that the Philippians sent him multiple gifts in that three-month span or whatever. He says in verse 14, He had it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, he says, you sent for my help. Except, excuse me, he sent help for my needs once and again. So while he was in Thessalonica, and while he was laboring away, apparently to supplement his needs, he was receiving financial support from the Philippians. And he did all this, he says, because he didn't want to add a burden, an unnecessary burden to what was already an extremely poor congregation, a beggarly congregation. As he says to the Corinthians, who he also didn't receive support from, he says, I wouldn't take any money from you. Instead, what did I do? I robbed other churches, kind of speaking in an exaggerated way. When Paul went into new territories, he wouldn't ask the people for financial support because he didn't want to burden them. We do the same thing today. When we send a missionary somewhere, what do we do? We send them out with support. We send them out because we feel like it would be an impediment on the gospel for us to send them out and and have them just go out and begin to ask those that they're preaching to to support them. So here's Paul going into all these new territories, taking financial support from the churches when necessary, working with his own hands, but all of it showing the toil and the labor of a minister who loved his people. Along the way, as he worked in his trade, receiving support from the church, Paul had a third reason why he did this. And specifically for the Thessalonians, he says, it was to provide them with an important example. He wanted to give them the example of his life. In fact, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. Paul says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This was apparently a struggle in the Thessalonian church. It might have actually been one of the contributing factors as to why they were such an impoverished congregation. Because they were simply sinful in this area. 
coming out of their pagan background, coming out of uh, whatever they came out of, there were a number of them who had, had come to this place in their life where they were idle a lot. And so one of the things that Paul wanted to do was to disciple them by way of example. And he knew and he understood in the context of that congregation, there would be tremendous value for him simply showing them as well as telling them what it looks like to be a man of God in the daily labors of life. This was a problem Paul understood it and he wanted to help them. In fact, he, he brings it up even over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, we urge you, brothers, verse 11, we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he, he talks about it in the, cha- in the first book. He talks about it in the second book. He's continually pounding this because this is an area where they needed profound sanctification. Even over chapter 5, he comes again. He says, I, I urge you, brothers, admonish the idol." Admonish the idol. So along with not wanting to open himself up to accusations and not wanting to burden them in the midst of their poverty, he also understood that this was a needed area in their congregation for example, for instruction by way of his own life pattern. This was part of his discipleship to show them what it looked like to work night and day for the right kind of things. Now, of course, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, his desire would have been that everyone could have done what he did. He wished that everyone was like he was, meaning that he was a single man. He didn't have the cares and the concerns of a family to tend to, and he rejoiced in that, but he recognized that not everyone has that. There are people who have responsibilities within their home to their spouses and to their children, and they have to take time and make sure that they're taken care of. But the point in all of this, the point in everything that Paul is saying is not that our life will match his exactly. We're not all day laborers, we're not all tent makers, we're not all employed the same way he's employed, we're not all single. But the point in all of this is the sacrifice, the willingness to work hard at the sake, for the sake of the ministry. This wasn't just Paul. He wasn't saying, look, this is just what I do because I have a calling on my life as a minister, so therefore I pour out myself, I exhaust myself, but that's what I'm supposed to do. He's saying, no, I gave you an example. This is what what I did in order to set the pace for you. But now this is what you need to do in turn. Your life needs to be poured out. Serving and and doing what you need to do within the context of your own life for, for, for providing for yourself and and providing for your family and providing even generously to others. But even after you've done all of that, you've only just begun night and day 
pouring out sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. We are in such a narcissistic society that demands so much for itself, so much pleasure and comfort and luxury for itself. We're raising children within that context where they feel like they have some right to demand all of these things for themselves. Paul had none of that. As a shepherd, he was sacrificial. And they knew it. They saw it. They could recall it in their minds. There's another thing he wanted them to remember, and it's our sixth quality of a genuine shepherd. And that is in verse 10 that he was blameless. He was blameless in his conduct. He says, Your witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. Continuing just to drive home the content of his message as well as the nature of his conduct. He points to this integrity and this godliness that was lived out in front of them from the time that they knew Him. He'd already talked about it back in chapter 1, reminding them, he says, Our gospel came to you not in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction, and you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. He already linked together the power of of the ministry that the Lord had brought about through him and the character of his life, his life, we might say, the integrity of his life, enhanced his preaching, gave it viability in that sense. At least didn't hinder it. And while his detractors wanted to say he was motivated by greed, while he was motivated by some desire for personal prestige, he proved himself to be self-sacrificial. And while they wanted to say that he operated with deceptive schemes, he could make an open appeal to the integrity of his life. He can invite anyone to examine. He calls on the Thessalonians, you are witnesses, he says. And he also calls on God. He says, God also is a witness. Because they could recall his, his outward behavior. They conducted, uh, or they, they watched him conduct his affairs, we might say, in close quarters to them. They were the ones who were most qualified to give witness to his behavior because they saw him on a day in and day out basis. And when Paul says he put an example in front of them of hard work, he might even be implying that along the way in his discipleship, he took with him some of these believers into the tent making shop and taught them his trade and showed them what it looks like to work a hard, uh, a hard day of work. And along the way, he would have taken that opportunity to speak to them, disciple them, talk to them about the gospel. There's people that have done whole studies now on how Paul likely took his tent-making shop and turned it into a school for discipleship. He most likely did what every other tradesman in that day did, which was take along a certain amount of apprentices. And he would have chosen them from among the new believers. And he would have taught them how to work hard with their hands. And he would have taught them the gospel at the same time. And what that brought them was first-hand contact with him on a daily basis. 
a daily basis. You might have these, these guys, these critics who came in afterward and started to try to convince the church, you know, you, Paul's a charlatan, you can't be trusting this guy, he's deceitful, he's, all, he's only in it for your money. And he reminds them, you're witnesses, he says. You're witnesses of my life in close quarters. You would have seen the significant gaps if they were there. But you can recall this. You can recall the way we behaved from the time that you knew us. What they couldn't see, of course, was his heart. They couldn't see what was on the inside. And so he also calls on God as a witness because God could give witness to that. And Paul was comfortable in putting his life in God's hands. God is determinative, he says, in this as well. He was determinative. If he doesn't want me in the ministry, if he doesn't want me to be entrusted with the gospel, if he doesn't approve me for that, then he will deal with that. And for Paul, the way this manifested itself was in a pure conscience. He had a clear conscience. He says it again and again and again throughout his writings. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, for example, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. He understood the importance of the clarity of his conscience because if you violate that, if you fill your mind with guilt because you have some secret hidden life of shame, because you filled your life with shameful behavior, it absolutely mutes your testimony. You cannot go on ministering the gospel if you are dealing with a conflicted conscience. It will, it will only go two ways. You will either silence that conscience by, by deadening it and suppressing it and eventually killing it so that you have no more conscience and your life just becomes an unraveling mess of sin upon sin and you just fall into further moral decay you either go that route because you you can't get get along with a conscience or you maintain a sensitive conscience but you're walking around all the time with your conscience screaming at you so that you don't have the confidence anymore to stand boldly and proclaim the truth and so Paul says look God is a witness And God has approved me and He has given me a clear conscience so that I can continue preaching the message of the truth the way that I preach it. And He's he's got my life, He's got my ministry in His hands. I've submitted myself to Him. He continues to give me clarity in my conscience, power in my ministry. He's witness here as well. And so you can give witness and, and God can give witness to what? To how holy and righteous and blameless. Holy is really a word that refers to the attitudes with which you, the reverence you might even say, with which you conduct yourself before God. Righteous is a focus on the upright behavior before people. And you take all those together and you summarize it in blamelessness. It's the entire testimony of his life, his overall reputation. He had nothing in his life to hide. He was transparent. He was open. He wasn't running around trying to keep any dark secrets. 
He could be examined. He could be cross-examined. He could be scrutinized. And the sincerity and the uprightness of his life would pass the test. It's indispensable for a shepherd. It's indispensable. It was for Paul in his ministry. He not only appeals to it here, he appeals to it time and time again in Galatians and Philippians and Corinthians. Because he knew that this was the key to the power of his testimony. It's the only way, really, that a shepherd should conduct himself. There is no other pathway. There's no other excuse for someone to stand and desire to be a spiritual leader when they don't have this kind of testimony. And so shepherds, those that we would entrust our life to, must meet this demand. They must meet this demand. Not a perfect life. When Paul says an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 must be above reproach, he's not talking about a life that that is never fallible, never makes a mistake. He's not saying that at all, but he's saying if you look at the balance of the life of this man, what you see is a life that you can imitate. What you see is a life that you can follow, a life that you can mirror. You can imitate, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then finally and quickly, a seventh quality of a genuine shepherd is that he's fatherly in his instruction. He says there in verse 11, You know how like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. This is like an extension of the clarity of Paul's conscience. He's saying, you can remember this. We weren't just dispensing to you some facts. We weren't just giving you a few interesting bits of trivia. We were like a father with his children exhorting and encouraging and charging you to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God. You can't very well do that while at the same time you're not. And so Paul says, you remember this. Already he had alluded to his ministry as being like a nursing mother, indicating that there was a constant kind of tenderness in his instruction with them. He didn't just blurt out these truths. He he wasn't just a talking head. There was a tenderness in the way that he delivered the truth to them. But now he compares this to that of a father with an emphasis on the instructional nature. Like a father, he says, we were exhorting, we were encouraging, we were charging you. That was the responsibility of a father. Certainly in those days, it was looked upon as the father's role to give this kind of moral instruction. The father was the teacher of life, of wisdom, of trade, of how to conduct yourself in society, of all those things. And Paul says his instruction came to them and was conveyed to them. First of all, with this exhortation, parakeleo, you probably know that word, paraclete is the word that's translated as the Holy Spirit, someone who comes alongside and it has this idea of a helper. You're not just someone who barks out a few uh, you know, principles in a classroom. You are someone who comes alongside. The, the, the Holy Spirit is looked at as a helper 
The Holy Spirit is looked at as a comforter. The Holy Spirit is looked at as this, this companion along with us in our spiritual journeys. And so you have this idea that, that as Paul is teaching them, he's not teaching them just sort of podium to pupil. He's teaching them along the course of life, coming alongside, putting his arm around them, walking with them through their trials, through their difficulties. He was there in the dark times. He was there in the hard times. And he was teaching them the lessons that they needed to learn in that moment. Secondly, he says, we were encouraging you. Paramutheomai is the word. It kind of brings together this this idea again of, of... coming alongside, but has particularly the idea of comfort and consolation, which is so critical when you're dealing with someone in the process of maturity and you're, what you're really dealing with when you're helping someone in the process of maturity is you're dealing with failure. What you're really dealing with are people who are not meeting the mark. And so the last thing that they need is some sort of self-righteous club beating them over the head over and over and over again. What they need is encouragement. What they need is someone to remind them of the good things that God has given them and the wonderful things that are the blessings that already affirm His love to them and the, and the fruitfulness that has already occurred in their life and the things for which they should continue to strive and why they should strive for them. It's a beautiful expression, really, of the fatherly kindness, the fatherly spirit that that Paul had, that every father should have. And then finally, how he says, we were imploring you, it's from the word martyr, you could translate it testifying or, or witnessing, but it has the idea of conflict or danger always about it. And so you might say that Paul was warning them, might be a good way to translate this. I'm always warning you. I, I couldn't help myself but to come alongside of you. And you might have grown tired of it and weary of it to hear the same things over and over and over. But that's what a father does. A father is in that role. He's not there simply to be your cheerleader all the time. He's there to say the difficult things that you don't always want to hear about your slothfulness, about your tongue, about your pride, about whatever it might be. Paul says, I was there, I was warning you, I was admonishing you about not following that course, about not going down that pathway, about those kinds of people and what they might do to you. I was there encouraging you towards obedience and encouraging you towards discipline and reminding you of the consequences if you didn't, explaining to you how that would work out in your spiritual life. This is parenting. This is what fathers are not guys that clock in and clock out and bring home their paycheck and then come home and throw their feet up on the table and watch their shows in the evening. Fathers are people who come alongside. They come alongside, they they speak with words of encouragement, but they also speak with words of warning and instruction. Like a father. And by the way, they set the example too. 
Just like Paul could say, you know, look, you, you become imitators of me. This is what a father is able to say. Hey, I want you, what I want you to do is I want you to have your time together with the Lord like I have my time together with the Lord. By the way, what, what I want you to do is I want you to serve the way I serve. I want you to speak to people the way I speak to people. I want you to talk to your mother the way I talk to your mother. That's what fathers do. They set the example. They set the pace. And then they exhort, and then they come alongside, and then they encourage, and they implore. Faithfully teaching spiritual principles, driving it home in lives with encouragement. That's what fathers do. That's what spiritual leaders do. And always setting before them the ultimate goal, Paul says, which was that that they would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. He's reminding them of what God's called them to. They may not be there yet, but He's reminding them of what God has called them to. Well, God's preparing them for something beyond where they are today. I was thinking about this with this week with a prince. How it must be to grow up as a prince when you're not the king yet, but you spend your whole life learning how to live as if you were the king. You live your life in preparation of a kingdom and a glory that will one day be shining all that spotlight and focus on you, but there's graciously in God's providence a very long training period for most of these princes so they can learn how they ought to conduct themselves and walk in a, in a way that's worthy of a king. Well, we're going to reign together with Christ. We're going to have duties and responsibilities in His kingdom. He's preparing us to share in His glory. And Paul says, I, I did this. I called you to walk in a manner worthy with the understanding that God has called you into His kingdom and His glory. He's preparing you. He's preparing you for work that He wants you to accomplish here and now. He's preparing you even for work that goes beyond the grave. That's what fathers do. They look at their children. They look at those who are immature. They think about what they could be, what they ought to be, what they will be. And they try to prepare them. They try to get them to understand the lessons they need to understand to see the dangers of what they're going to face. Talk to them about the heart issues that will sneak up on them when they least suspect it. To remind them of the right, right kind of values, the purpose, all of those things. This is what spiritual leaders do. They're not just fountainheads of facts. They're not just orators with wonderful sounding messages. They're like parents. They're engaged, loving, sacrificial, pouring out not only the gospel of God, but their whole life because you're dear to them. And because this is what the Savior taught us who gave himself as a ransom.
It's a challenge to all of us, not just to me, not just to our elders, but to you. Paul says, be imitators. This is the way I live. This is the way I served within the body of Christ. You do the same thing. You sacrifice, you love, you implore, you come alongside, you encourage. You do the same thing. Because this is what the gospel does when we're called into his kingdom and glory. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this and moved by this. Thankful for the grace and the mercy that we have been given to even contemplate being used in this way. We don't deserve it. Far be it from us, O Lord, that we would ever be thinking that we had some claim on the right to be used by you in any way. And when you do use us, Lord, it is simply your mercy. So let us respond in that way, overwhelmed by the opportunity, willing to do whatever we must do, walking with integrity and blamelessness to present ourselves as instruments for your use. Courageous and careful in our lives. And always bold with tenderness to those that we minister to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.